This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it is Rebecca, and today I am chatting with author Lucy E.M. Black. Lucy is an inveterate eavesdropper. She collects voices, dialects, and stories, and weaves them into her writing. She studied writing at the undergraduate level and earned an M.A. in 19th century British fiction. She is the author of The Marzipan Fruit Basket, a collection of short stories, Eleanor Courtown, a work of historical fiction, and Stella's Carpet, a novel about intergenerational trauma. The Brickworks, which is the novel we will be talking about today, is a historical novel, and it will be released uh, in a few weeks. I think I believe it's October 14th, uh, 2023. Her award-winning stories have been published in Britain, Ireland, the USA, and Canada. She lives with her partner in the small lakeside town of Port Perry, Ontario, the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of Scugog Island First Nations. Welcome, Lucy. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Same here. And I just want to let everyone know that I actually received a copy of the Brickworks through River Street Writing by publicist uh, Halle Godry, who we interviewed or who I interviewed for her memoir, Fuse. And so just a shout out to Halle for promoting this wonderful book that I loved so much. And I just want to say, because Lucy, I should have told you up front, I love to gush about authors and that I especially love. And this book, the thing I loved about it is it's my favorite time period in historical fiction. So kind of turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And I also love when it is historically accurate. Now, I didn't do the research, but it seems really authentic to me. And we'll talk a little bit about that in your research process. But can you tell us a little bit about the Brickworks? Yes. Well, firstly, thank you so much for your kind words, Rebecca. I'm very excited about this book launch. Um, It's only um, a few weeks away now. Um, But the Brickworks is a historical fiction. Um, It takes place during the period 1879 to 1910. And essentially, it traces the lives of two young men who leave Scotland and end up in Buffalo seeking their fortune. One young man is named Brody, and he has trained as a civil engineer. And the other young man, Alistair, has been trained as a brickmaker. And the men meet working at a steel mill where they're fabricating bridges for trains. And they decide to throw their lot in together. So they purchase some land in the Canadas and they start a brickworks in a sheep farm and uh, essentially change the community as they're building this little industry together. Underlying the story is something that I think is really important, which is progressivist ideology, the sense that anything and everything is possible as a result of science and technology and That's very much a part of the ethos of the end of the Victorian age, moving into the Edwardian period. And I I really wanted to amplify um, the importance of that kind of innovation. My first question for you really is, what prompted you to write about this time in history specifically? And then sort of why bridges and even bricks? I thought that was really fascinating. 
<laughs> well, like you, it's a period of history that I love. But this novel actually began with a visit to an area near our home called Caledon. We were just out for a Sunday drive and I, I thought I spied a, a woolen mill in the distance. And so we parked the car and hiked over to it. But it wasn't a woolen mill. It was a ruin of what's known as the Cheltenham Brickworks in Caledon. Beautiful, romantic setting. And it was a kind of stormy, overcast day, but there were these derelict buildings and chimneys and shards of brick all around. And I realized I, I didn't know very much about the history of bricks, but I did know that they were important um, because I knew that we'd had a huge fire in Toronto in the early 1900s that had taken out much of the downtown core. And the small town where, where I live in Port Perry had had two huge fires, one in 1883 and one in 1884. And so what happened is that people started rebuilding in brick so that the buildings wouldn't burn as quickly. So I started doing some research into brick making because I didn't understand where the technology came from. I couldn't sort of get my head around how all of these small towns suddenly started building brickworks and producing their own bricks. And I just got more and more interested in that story. The, the bridges and the Tay Bridge disaster in particular um, came into the story when I was um, developing my characters. I like to have a backstory for my characters. And I realized that that to do what I wanted, these men would have grown up in the 1870s in Scotland. So I was Googling Scottish history and trying to find out what had happened in the 1870s in Scotland and came across the Taybridge disaster. And um, the Taybridge disaster in 1879 was a huge shock to the world, really. The bridge was two miles long and it went from Dundee toward the across the Firth of the Tay towards Edinburgh. It was the longest bridge in the world and it was considered a marvel of Victorian engineering, which sort of lines up with my emphasis on progressive, progressivist ideology. But what happened was the bridge failed um, during a winter storm and the train plunged into the Tay and people died. And so that lined up really well with my overall theme about progressivism. So we flew to Scotland and I did some research there on the Tay Bridge and on jute mills. And um, then we flew to Saskatchewan where there's a, there was a national historic site of a brickmaking plant. And I spent um, three days there learning all about brickmaking. And uh, then I came home and interviewed civil engineers and brickmakers and sort of pull, started pulling all my research together and realized there was a really compelling story there. I'm sitting here completely gobsmacked at what you what you did in terms of your research and pulling all of that together. How long did it take? Did How long from the point where you started to think, oh, this whole thing about bricks is kind of fascinating to the trip to Scotland, et cetera. Like how long was that sort of research and thinking about it process? It will be six years from the time wow. 
I I was at the Cheltenham Brickworks to my book launch. That's six years. It, it took 15 drafts. Wow. That is amazing. Like, is that, I, I'm not a writer and I've never actually asked a writer how many drafts they would normally do. Is that a lot in this particular case compared to your other novels or your other fiction, I should say? This one um, required more drafts um, than some of my other books because there was a great deal of technical information in the book. Um, you've read it, so you know what I mean. Yeah. And I wanted to be sure that I had all of the technical information accurate. So once I had researched something and wrote it, I consulted with a civil engineer or I consulted with a brickmaker and then went back and modified if necessary, where necessary. So that took several drafts. And then there are 20 characters in this book with substantial speaking parts. And some of them are Irish and some of them are Scots. And each of them has their own sort of lexicon, if you will, with their own idiosyncratic speech patterns. So I do what I call um, speech draft where I start with one character and I go all the way through the novel, just ensuring that their lexicon is consistent and appropriate. So Brody, he has a, an uneducated sort of dialect at the beginning of the novel, but by the time he's studied and become a civil engineer, he becomes more literate, his um, written language improves, his spoken language is, is more finessed. And, and so I had to go through my drafts, making sure that the changes to his language as he progressed in the novel made sense. And then when he and Alistair, who's also a Scot, are together in conversation, because they're both Scot, they tend to use a, a lot of expressions that are familiar one to the other that they wouldn't necessarily use with other people who weren't Scots. So... The language edits for this was really quite tedious. And then when it was all finished, I had three very good friends who were very kind go through the manuscript. They were Scots, and um, they went through the manuscript to to flag anything that, that they thought needed finessing. So the language is something I had to work really hard on. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but it is funny because when Brody and Alistair were talking to each other, I could, I, I really felt that, that they were, that's how they would talk because like you say, they're both Scotsmen and that is how they would communicate with each other. And one of the things I want to bring up, because I wrote about this in my review on, on Instagram, and that is, and I wondered at the time, I think we might have mentioned it on our last podcast, Tara and I, when we were talking about it. And I wasn't sure if this was your decision or an editor's decision, but not using quotation marks and using just italicized all the, the dialogue, it made me feel like I was in the middle of their lives. And I was sort of, I, I said, kind of off to the side or sneaking around a corner, listening to them talk, because it it kept me in the emotion and the conversation that was taking place rather than that hard quotation marks and he said this. It, it just was this give and take and it felt very fluid and natural in the language. And 
as the reader, I just felt more kind of kind of enmeshed in their their characters. Does that make sense? Yes, I'm so glad you said that. I picked this style up um, from some Irish writers several years ago. And like you, I really gravitated towards it. I felt that it was more immersive. But interestingly, um, some of the publishers and editors I dealt with were unhappy with that editing choice. But fortunately, the the man who published um, this book, Chris Needham at Now or Never Publishing, you know, didn't blink. It worked for him as well. And I agree with you. I find that the quotation marks are like a hard stop when you're reading. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. I love that style. So please go back and tell him he, he was, that was an excellent choice. I'm glad you all maintained it because I loved it just exactly the way it was. So beautiful. My next question is, I especially loved the relationship between Brody and Alistair because of their childhoods, right? And how they grew up. And we don't often see adult male bonding as the focus in novels, and especially in the early 20th century. And I wondered, how did these characters come to be? And then I have another question I'll ask after that. But first, how did these two men come to be? Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you liked my men. They really and truly came out of the social history of the period. I would say that the bonding that occurs between them is something that we know happens across time in many different contexts. I, I just thought it was suitable in terms of the history that I was writing about that I would amplify these two young men seeking their fortunes. They, they had the shared vision, the shared goal. And also, what about just the, the way they both grew up, too? And I think neither one of them had a lifetime of, of close family relationships. And so I really felt that they were brothers to each other. And, I, and that was just really, like I said, that was just a really beautiful part of the novel. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they, they both suffered terrible losses as young men, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And that helped to form their character. But again, the, the kind of losses that each of them experienced and, and how they navigated their life afterwards, again, comes out of the social history of the period. The other question I had, and this is sort of a writing question, because, you know, there's a lot of just sometimes controversy becomes controversial, I guess. But this idea of males writing female characters or women writing male characters, and I just wondered, how different is that as an author to voice male characters, or, or I'm assuming female characters are easier to write since you're a woman, Is it or is it that way? Or how does that work as an author? I'm really kind of fascinated by this. No, that's a really good question. And you're, you're quite right. Um, there's been lots of pushback about appropriation mm-hmm. and whether or not authors should go there. I'm very comfortable writing beyond my gender. And I do so with the knowledge that or the belief anyway, that some aspects of behavior are socially constructed by the time in which my characters lived. And and I believe that there are human experiences that are universal, that are shared for both male and female characters. So 
In terms of my writing, I would say the differences between a male character and a female character are often related to the social mores of the period Ooh. in terms of the prescribed roles that those individuals would have. So in the Brickworks, for instance, we meet a young woman named Violet, and she's part of a new social elite. She's spoiled. She's indulged. She's delightful. But we also have Alistair, and he's a working class, self-made man. And I think that both of those characters come to be a result of the time and class that they represent. At least I hope so. I mean, that's what I was aiming for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention, too, that I really, really loved about the book, because a lot of listeners will know I've said this so many times before, but I I read so many romance novels when I was young, and I just kind of got burned out on them. So for me, it's really hard. I don't really read romance very often. But what I love is a natural romance, a realistic romance within a especially a historical novel. And I have to tell you that both the relationships for Brody and for Alistair, I absolutely love them. To me, they were over the top, wonderfully romantic and beautiful. I loved both of the relationships. And that's the kind of romance I like. So not traditional romances, but romance within a natural setting. So I thought you nailed that part as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I find romance really easy to write, Rebecca. I am fortunate to be married to the most wonderful man. And um, so many of the, the male characters I write have some of his qualities. I live a romance. So... It's easy for me to write romance. Oh, my God. Okay, so what parts of, can you just say a little bit about, is he more Alistair or Brody, What do you, or is a mixture? I would say that he's a combination of the two of them, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. He's really, really bright and really, really kind. So like Alistair, you know, he'd empty his bank account to give a friend his last penny. Yeah. But like Brody, he'd take on a part-time job if it was needed to pay the bills. I, and uh, he's always happy to puzzle something out. He's, he's the best of both of them. Oh my gosh. That's beautiful. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I did want to ask you a little, about, a little bit about your writing process, because that is also something that fascinates me about authors. So my question is kind of, do you outline? Do you write every day? And sort of where do your stories come from? But I love how the Brickworks came out. But your other books as well, how does that process work for you? Okay, so I'll start with the writing part. When writing historical fiction, I do a lot of reading and research before I begin to work on the project. And I do do an outline. I block out huge sections of the novel usually in chapters. And then I look at that blocking to try to ensure that, that there's some sort of narrative arc. There's some tension, there's a climax, there's a denouement that, you know, and there's forward movement, there's energy, there's tension. And the next thing I do is I work on my characters. I, I choose my main characters. I choose their names, their birthdays, their parents, their family homes, their appearance their education, their idiosyncrasies. 
And uh, sometimes I look at magazines um, for reference photos, historic pictures to try and get a sense of what they look like and how they move, what they wear. Once I have those details fleshed out for my characters and I've done my research and I've done my blocking, this kind of magical thing happens where the characters actually begin to walk around in my head and speak to me. And the story just unspools. So do you, when you start, do you know how it's going to end or is that something that happens organically? I have an idea of where I'd like it to go, but that doesn't always happen. Sometimes my characters overrule me and uh, take me in a slightly different direction. And I've learned to trust them. Oh, I love that. I love that. My, I guess my last question, but then a, a little uh, teaser for everyone at the end here. But uh, are you currently researching a new novel? Are you in the researching part of it? Are you in the writing part of it? Is there something coming along soon? I'm working on a sequel to my first novel, which was called Eleanor Curtin. So that came out in 2017. And friends and readers and people I've never met have contacted me asking for a sequel over the years. And so I thought about it when I finished the Brickworks and I realized there's more to the story. Oh. So I, I am, I've done the blocking and I've finished first draft of the first chapter and I'm into the second chapter. This novel is different in that much of it takes place in Ireland. So um, when I wrote Eleanor Curtin, we actually went to Ireland so I could do the research. And I need to go back to Ireland. I, I know that sounds like a, a terrible hardship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm able to, um, to do enough of the research to do the first chapter and the second chapter. And then I'm going to have to pause it and, until um, I can manage the trip to Ireland to finish my research. But um, it's pretty exciting. I'm very... I'm just in love with the characters. They're just chatting away to me, and uh, I'm quite excited about it. And what time period is that novel? 1887, actually. Eleanor Curtin was um, in 1870, and I don't know. You probably haven't read it, although I'd love you to read it. I'm 100% going to read it. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm going to have to get your address. I'll mail it to you. Oh, thank you. Eleanor and the love of her life, Dr. Stewart, end up adopting um, her cousin's little girl, Kathleen. And um, so now, 15 years later, um, she's taking Kathleen to Ireland so that she can meet her cousins. Okay. When can we expect? Is it going to be a couple years before the sequel comes out then, do you think? Probably. Historical fiction takes a long time between sort of the research and, and the editing. And mm-hmm. and then even when it's done, um, you know, it takes even longer to find a publisher. I have been published by small independent Canadian presses. I am not one of those people that's been fortunate enough to land a big publishing contract. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people writing wonderful books. So finding a publisher is always a challenge. Yeah. In my small part of the universe here on Bookstagram, I should say, 
I just want to encourage all of our listeners to please pick up this book. Again, it'll be available, you know, around the 14th of October. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And thank you for this opportunity. It's just been lovely chatting. I would love if you could read a little section of the Brickworks for our readers or for our listeners so that we hopefully can encourage them to pick up the book. So I'm going to start on page six. And this is one of my main characters, Alistair Lamont. And he has gone to the Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo. In his tweed suit, woolen tie, and thick-soled brogues, Alistair looked every bit a Scot. Red hair cut in short waves framed his face. His eyes were bright blue and merry, and his complexion ruddy, suggesting much time spent out of doors. He was a man accustomed to hard work but also a man with some degree of refinement. He strode confidently through the space, intently focused on his studies. He did not notice those in the gallery who glanced at him curiously, taking his measure. A handsome man in good clothes and with strong roughened hands held easily at his side. A pair of wrought iron screens having drawn his attention Alistair moved toward the set of doors leading to an outside porch. As he approached, he observed a young woman on a little stool close by, absorbed in replicating a painting. She was bent over her palette and studiously mixing a pale shade of pink. Embarrassed to have trespassed so closely, he tipped his head in her direction. Pardon my intrusion, he said. The girl looked up at him and smiled. No matter. I was making a mess of it. And then she laughed. A light musical sound. Alistair was struck by the delicacy of her. The earnestness with which she worked. The light-hearted manner in which she had excused him. He took in her fine features and long paint-smeared fingers. Excuse me, he said again taking a step away, feeling flushed and not a little clumsy. There's no need to leave. She stood and extended her dainty hand. I'm Violet Lewis. Alistair moved forward and bowed, touching her hand lightly. Alistair Lamont, at your service. I'm so glad, she laughed. Perhaps you can help me with this. What do you think it needs? Needs? Alistair looked at her canvas. She was painting an exact copy of the picture on the wall. It looks a replica. Very good, I'm sure. She laughed again. You are too kind. It is nothing near as good. Mine is clumsy and badly colored. Look how softly he has mixed the skin tones. She stepped more closely to the painting on the wall and pointed to the faces of the little girls playing on a grassy slope. It looks well to me, Alistair suggested hopefully, but I didn't profess to know anything about art. Why, of course not. That's why you're here, is it not? To learn more. That's why we all come. Well, Alistair countered, I am here to study the building. I'm interested in the construction. Really? How perfectly lovely. I think it's simply beautiful. I come here to paint and study the collection. 
I feel as though we're in a Greek temple. He hesitated, unsure how to respond politely. So Lucy, thank you so much for reading a, a small section of the book. And I loved it. I love that whole beginning part of of Alistair. And I love that he was shy, but he was like a man's man kind of person. I Anyway, I just loved all the characters. So I'll quit gushing and I will just say thank you so much. And when the next book is ready, we would love to have you come back and chat with us again. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us on our bookish journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Canada Reads American Style wherever you listen. You can connect with the podcast and Rebecca on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style and with Tara at On a Branch Reads. Until next time, keep reading.